Why don't you look around and see who the other Thanksgiving weekend virus survivors are. You made it. You did it. So grateful for the um, opportunity to be together here and sing of God's goodness and sing of all the ways in which He has um, at work around the world and giving us a church and giving us His Son and so on. We're on week four of four in our generosity series called Giver, Church Members Are Givers. And this um, is a perfect time for this because it is the Thanksgiving month. And uh, here we take a weekend like this weekend and we focus on being thankful. And it's good medicine for the soul. We get one day during one month during an entire year to celebrate all that we have, to be thankful. And um, we certainly believe that church members are thankful every day. We are grateful every day. And that God's challenge for His church is to learn to be givers, not give our lives to being getters, right? And uh, this comes from this idea here that Paul writes to the Corinthians, this whole series on members, our church members, are givers, comes from this idea uh, that one of the ideas is that Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, there's so many things that you're good at. There's so many things that you're good at that the people who are outside the church, outside of God's family are also good at. But you belong to me. You belong to God. You are joined to Jesus. And if you're a Christian, we already see in your church that you excel in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, enthusiasm, even all the love that you're getting from us, you're excelling in all those things. But then he goes on to say, but don't stop there. If you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus, don't stop there. The rest of the world is devoted themselves to being excellent at acquiring things, earning power, uh, promotions, gathering wealth, and accumulating stuff. And Paul actually transitions here. He pivots here. He says, I want you to excel also in the gracious act of giving. Don't just be good at getting. Don't just excel in other things that the church excels at when they gather together. Excel in your generosity. And, um, but it's possible a lot of Christians don't excel in generosity. It's possible that a lot of Christians don't excel, a lot of churches don't excel in the gracious act of giving. Actually, it's quite the opposite. It's possible that there are uh, among us in our church family or in other church families that there are people who are Christians who might unknowingly be ruining their own lives. They think that what's happening to them is some misfortune, they've become unlucky, or somehow um, they can't quite catch a break. But in actuality, they might be ruining their own life. In some ways, they feel trapped and in some ways, there are Christians who um, actually are experiencing a faith that is warped, that is weak, or even sometimes missing. And their lives might be chaotic or painful. And it turns out it's all for the same reason. And it turns out that the distress that's going on in their life isn't because someone else hasn't given them a break or they somehow haven't um, uh, lucked out the way that other people have. It's all for the same reason, and it's because of the perils of those who want to get rich and the perils of those who love money. 
Can you imagine? Imagine it's possible that someone you know's life is facing all kinds of devastation and ruin, and the reason that it's facing that kind of ruin is because they have an insatiable love of money and a, and a, a profound drivenness to get rich. And along with that comes this uh, complicated, and we're going to see this here together, where um, we discover that there's really two kinds of Christians that Paul is writing to here in Timothy. And he's writing to Christians who have an inner contentment or they have an inner consumption. They have an inner uh, craving for more. Christians who are either organizing their life around either contentment or they're organizing their life around consumption. Now, consumerism is the obsession with the acquisition of things that become the organizing principle of the American life. That's the definition of consumerism. It is the obsession with the acquisition that becomes, uh, with acquisition that has become the organizing principle of their lives. They organize their lives around acquiring things. And um, if not consumption, then what? What is the alternative? What kind of wealth should a real Christian pursue? By the way, you all know, I, I, sometimes I say, um, I'm going to throw this in there just to make sure that we understand each other. This is one of those times. Do we, do we grasp and understand that Jesus doesn't condemn our wealth, right? Jesus doesn't condemn having stuff. Jesus doesn't condemn us for being a wealthy people in the, in, in the West. Um, so that's important, I think, right? So people who are starting to feel like, oh, man, I got all this stuff. I feel so guilty. I should just... Um, you know, just to purify myself. I should, that, that we, we haven't been uh, instructed by Jesus to take a vow of poverty. Uh, but instead, wealth is to be leveraged. Wealth is a gift that's given to us to be leveraged for, um, for generosity. So what kind of wealth should a real Christian pursue? Well, Paul gives us this specific kind of wealth, and I want to read it to you. Check this out. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Yet true godliness... Godly people, people who are members of a church, people who belong to, the, to God and are joined to Jesus, these people who are born again following Jesus, they are disciples, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. Um. Preachers have this cheesy joke they use that you've never seen a U-Haul at a funeral. I don't use that joke because it's cheesy. But there are some, clearly. As cheesy as it is, it's not wrong, right? Um, so Paul is saying here that if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. If we have enough food and we have enough clothing then we respond to those needs being met with contentment. That's enough. How many of you ever said to your kids, enough is enough? How many of you ever said to your husband, never mind? <laughs> enough is enough. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that when you belong to God's church, we have so much richness in being friends of God, in being made right with God. We have so much richness in the way that Jesus emptied himself of his wealth. He gave up his glorious um, throne, and he 
came to earth, took on flesh, and he lived in these meager, um, born in this meager setting. He lived, uh, in fact, it's reported that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head, that um, he was homeless and, in fact, was just kind of traveling around. And, and yet, he gave up all of that to take on this poverty so that he could make us wealthy with God, to have everything that we ever wanted we have in knowing and being known by God. So, um, here's what I want you to catch. At the very, very beginning here, I want you to catch this. For a Christian, your wealth, the way that you're wealthy, the way that you measure whether or not you are wealthy is by your contentment. Contentment is wealth. And by the way, if you're raising a family, this is such a fantastic little axiom or insight or proverb, right? If you're, if you're raising kids, you're trying to model and um, to teach and train the young ones in your home that our wealth is our contentment, being satisfied with what we already have when our needs are met. And that's how you get wealthy. Well, um, you know what that means? That means as a Christian, you may never be rich, but you can always be wealthy. That's what it means. You may never... Um, or let me put it another way. You can always be wealthy even if you're never rich. That's what it means. It means counter-culturally, Christians should be the ones who are experiencing what feels like wealth because they have a level of contentment that brings them satisfaction. And the rationale is that what good is it to accumulate stuff that you can't take with you anyway in the next life, the, the eternal life, the one that really goes on and matters? can't take anything with us when we're leaving the earth. We enter in our birthday suit, and we leave in our birthday suit-ish, right? Because usually, you know, they put your favorite Dallas Cowboys jersey on you when you're in the casket. And, and the criteria for contentment, what is it? How much do I need to be content? And the answer to that is the essentials. It's the essentials. The criteria for contentment is having enough essentials for survival. And because, now, isn't this hard, though? This is hard because, I'm going to say this. This is hard number, for two reasons. Number one, we have, there's something about our heart that is unsatisfied all the time. And we have to kind of come back to believing and receiving Jesus and faith in Jesus. He's everything we need. But there's another reason, too. And the other reason is because we live in America in the most prosperous nation in the world. And our DNA, our culture, is hardcore accumulation consumerism. And it, sh it shows up in every aspect of our lives. And um, probably a, uh, a message for another time. But enough essentials for survival. So that means food and shelter, um, clothing, Jesus said, you remember this, you remember this um, story that Jesus tells? And he's, he's basically saying, would you quit worrying about everything? Quit worrying about everything. Quit, knock it off. I can hear Jesus saying, just stop it. Stop worrying. And then, of course, Jesus doesn't end with that. He explains why you can stop it. Why? Why it is that you can just knock off the worrying. And he says, think of this. Think of the birds of the air. The birds don't plant and harvest and store up their food in a barn when they need it 
Instead, what do the birds do? The birds literally, um, literally exist, and then every day they have everything they need to eat, and it comes from the Father to the birds. And then Jesus says, how much more does he care about you than he does the ill birds? How much more? And then he says, um, so you can stop worrying about your food and drink and whether or not you have enough clothes to wear because the Heavenly Father is feeding the birds. And then he goes on. What about clothing? And he says, well, you know, if you're worried about clothing, and again, back in Jesus' culture there, clothing was an asset. It was extremely expensive to have good clothing. It was uh, stored in, in treasure chests. It was very, very unique um, uh, a priceless kind of a, um, um, asset that someone would own. And Jesus says, when you're thinking about your clothing, you don't even have to worry about what you're going to wear. You will have what you need to wear. And as an example, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the, look at the flowers, the wildflowers. They don't work. They don't stitch. They don't knit. I almost said knit. You don't knit your clothes, right? You kind of like accessories. You don't, uh, they don't make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his splendor was not as gloriously dressed as the lilies of the field, the wildflowers. The beauty of the wildflowers is a tribute. And, and if God cares, Jesus says, and if God cares so wonderfully about the wildflowers that are here today and then they're thrown into the fire tomorrow, how much more? How much more will he provide everything you need to wear? So look how Jesus diagnoses this, this word, this, um, I'm going to diagnose. Where does this worry come from? Jesus diagnoses it. Here's what he says. He says, but he will certainly care for you, meaning God. This is the end of the birds and the flowers. He will certainly care for you. So why do you have little faith? Isn't it amazing? Jesus actually says that the reason that you're struggling with this kind of worry, am I going to have enough? Am I going to get enough? Am I going to have enough to eat, enough to wear? Am I going to have enough, to, uh, um, enough shelter? And the reason, Jesus says, he says this is a, a, uh, that this contentment is a question of faith. It's not a question of finances. It's a question of, do I have a confidence in my bones that everything I need, the Father in heaven who cares for me more than he does his, his, his own lesser creation, is he going to provide for me? I saw this um, documentary yesterday. I was watching this documentary, um, National Geographic, and, oh my goodness, let me see if I can remember this. Check this out. There are birds that nest in the desert. Millions of birds nesting in the desert. There's no food anywhere in the desert for these birds, except that the wind blows, and when the wind blows, it picks up the sand and takes the sand into the seashore, and when the sand lands in the seashore, it's also picked up proteins and um, um, other life forms that are, that are kind of captured into the sand, and it lands in the water, and then the fish come along, the little tiny fish come along, <laughs> tiny fish. If you're wondering what kind of fish, they're tiny fish, <laughs> just to be clear, if you're taking notes. <laughs> so the little fish are eating this little plankton bacteria, whatever it is, don't quote me. And then, of course, what happens when you get little fish? 
Well, you get, then you get bigger fish. And then the birds eat the big fish. And imagine this, if you're a, if, try not to imagine this, but the birds are nesting in the desert millions at a time, and they don't have to worry themselves sick over where their food's going to come from. The wind basically blows their food to them. How does that happen? Because God of the universe provides everything that is needed for that which He has created and for those whom He loves. It's coming. If you need it, it'll be there. If you need it and it's an essential, God provides it for you. And then once we embrace contentment, we start to experience something far more than rich people experience. Rich people experience wealth and they believe that they've accumulated all that stuff by their own effort and if they don't let up on the effort, they're going to lose their wealth. And there's all kinds of research that's been done about the dissatisfaction of people who believe that they have to keep grinding or they're going to lose it all. And if I have a choice between my American materialistic wealth and my inner contentment, if it's that clear, I'm going to hold on to contentment and pursue contentment and and embrace contentment. And Jesus says that when you do, when you embrace contentment, you are expressing faith. You are living by faith when you say, I just, I know that he's going to provide everything because he certainly cares for me. So, what kind of life? This is in contrast. Paul contrasts this life. He says, uh, a question for you, what kind of life does the pursuit of wealth create? When somebody has got their nose to the stone and they're grinding away to, to accumulate their own wealth, what kind of life does the pursuit of wealth create? There's some specifics here I want to show you. Very specific uh, descriptions of that kind of life. Check this out. This is one of the most fascinating New Testament scriptures I think I've come across. This is my, my own opinion, but check this out. But people who long to be rich, these aren't people who are rich. These are people who long to be rich. They got their eye on the prize, right? They fall into temptation. They are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires. And what, what do they do? They plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have even wandered from the true faith. And they pierce themselves with many sorrows. So, um, listen to these words. Tempted, trapped, foolish, plunged into ruin, destruction, evil, wandering, pierced with sorrows. Fall. Harmful desires. Love for and craving money. All of those words describe the kind of life that long to, that are craving wealth. That have in their sights the desire to accumulate and acquire. So, Um, Keep this in mind. For a Christian, craving material wealth is disastrous. We wonder sometimes how how a parent can, uh, how a spouse, this is, I I don't know if I mentioned this a couple of Sundays ago, but um, when I catch these crime documentaries, and they're kind of like telling the story of this horrendous crime, like it's unthinkable, bizarro, and you're like, how does this happen? 
And I always ask this question, what could possibly drive somebody to do this? Do you know how often it's the same answer? The person that they killed, whether it's a spouse or whatever, had a life insurance policy and they were just cashing in on it. They were trying to steal their life insurance money. I mean, now, I think it's a, my, my, mind you, it's a leap to go from what Paul's writing about to murderous, um, 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 you know, murderous, um, murdering somebody. So if you long to be rich, here's what Paul says, you're to fall into temptation. If there's a longing in your heart, if you get your eye on the people who are a little better off than you are at work, people who have a little more than you do in the neighborhood. And what Paul is saying here is that if that's you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to creep, eventually it's going to lead you to fall off and fall over into temptation and to cut corners you wouldn't have cut, take things you wouldn't have taken. Try to, try to kind of um, cut a corner that you would have never cut ever. And he says you're trapped by desires. And these desires that you're trapped by plunge you into ruin and destruction and plunge into all kinds of evil. Christians who long to be rich. And this is why I said at the very beginning, it's possible that there are Christians ruining their lives by the simple idea that they're trapped by their desires and that they're, uh, they have completely chased after wealth in a way that's destroyed their lives and their love of money leads them into all kinds of evil. And if you want to know why, I mean, this is so important. If you follow, um, if you follow pop culture and politics closely, there's a phrase that helps you understand everything that's going on in the world. And here's the phrase, follow the money. You know, when I was young, I'd hear that phrase, follow the money. I'd be like, that's a movie line, right? And then now that I'm older and I pay more attention to things, I realize that's not just a movie line. That's a, that's a, that's a fact. If you want to discover most things in the world, just follow the money, and you will discover it. And what do we learn? That, that, that there's, all kind, where there's all kinds of evil somewhere in and around that, that evil that's happening is a love of money is a fascination and obsession with it. So some crave money, and they wander from the true faith. There are people who are um, committed themselves to follow Jesus, and then eventually they kind of latch on to this desire for prosperity, and they leave the real true gospel for something called the prosperity gospel, which promises them that if they have enough faith, they're going to reap a windfall of wealth. And you build your faith in order to build your wealth. And the prosperity gospel says that the main Message: The main purpose of the Christian faith is because God wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to overcome. He wants you to. Um, um, he wants you to e- e- not just on the inside, but he wants you to have everything you've ever wanted. God, it, it kind of goes like this: You can do it, and God will help. He's going to help you. And then uh, there's also another kind of gospel that leads people kind of, that money kind of pulls people, and that's the potential gospel, which is the main message these people um, teach, that the main message, the main kind of point of the gospel is to help you achieve your greatest potential, your God-given potential. 
It's about you overcoming. It's about you succeeding. It's about you achieving. And the end, the means, or the, the end of the gospel is to get you where you are um, really headed towards and living out your destiny. And uh, again, the primary uh, emphasis is on acquiring life enhancement, status, wealth, achievement, success. And, I mean, someone ought to tell any of these people, 11 out of the 12 disciples were martyred. It did not end well for Jesus' disciples. Um, in fact, you may have come across this book. This is a prevalent book in our culture a while back. There's a book called The Secret. And the idea of The Secret, it's a self-help book. And the idea behind The Secret is that, if you have, that there's a law of positive attraction where if you think about um, if, you, if you express energy, positive energy, um, that it attracts positive things into your life. Positive energy attracts positive things. And that th- that kind of positive energy governs your thinking and your actions. And then you use the power of positive thinking to achieve anything you can imagine. You just have to think it with enough positivity, and eventually it starts to show up in your life. And there is a secret, but um, this isn't God's secret to success. This isn't God's secret to living. This isn't uh, God's secret to um, living your best life now. In fact... Um, let's check and see. What do, what do we think now? Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Paul, describing how he has matured in his faith, and he says, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. Not that I was ever really in need, but I've learned to be content. Now, it's, it's, it's incredibly humble that Paul would say, not that I was ever in need, because uh, I'm going to kind of list for you, some of the hardships that Paul faced. He says, I know how to live on almost nothing or even with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's a full stomach or an empty, with plenty or with little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I want to pause there and just mention this verse. You've seen this verse tattooed on athletes' arms, right? They've, um, this is a very, very commonly mis- applied verse. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength doesn't mean you can achieve all your dreams and God wants to help. It means you can, you can persist through any kind of lack. You can persist through any kind of challenge that God, through Jesus, when you have Jesus, you have everything and it's enough to help you go another day up, over, through, around, and under all of the challenges that you're looking at, the headwinds that you're facing in your life, you can accomplish if you have Jesus because you already have enough. This isn't supposed to be a um, kind of a catchphrase for succeeding and overcoming and winning the game. So, what he's saying is, with Jesus, you can, you can endure any persecution or hardship. And so, um, this is what I want to ask you to consider. To, to, to focus a portion of your heart and your mind and your life, really, on learning the secret of living. Learning the secret of living. Of course, um, it's, it's not positive thinking and the law of attraction. 
Paul, the apostle, says, you can use me as an example. He says, look at me. I've learned the secret. I've learned to live content in all circumstances. Content. Not overcoming, achieving, succeeding, or praying everything away. He said, whatever comes my way, I just content. The Christian secret is not to be found within ourselves, however. See, the Stoics said that the secret to living you find in, in yourself. The New Agers teach the same thing, that you can, you can draw from within you anything you need. But instead, what does Paul say? It's not going to come from within, it's going to come from Jesus. Once you, once you believe and you receive Jesus... And you sense this fulfillment that I don't really need anything else. My eternity is secure. I have the riches of knowing God through Jesus. So Paul says, I've, I've learned to be content in every situation. And, and doesn't it make you wonder, well, what situations might Paul have learned to be content in? Check this out. I made a list. Um, he said, I've, I've learned to be content in labor more abundant. Oh, an, oh, an abundance of labor in stripes above measure. Stripes, you know what stripes are? The, the lashing of a, um, of a whip. Stripes above measure. In prisons, more frequently. I have faced death often from the Jews. Five times I received 40 stripes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I mean, come on, if any of us had one of those things happen, right, we'd be blogging like crazy. You won't, you won't believe this. Here's my book. Three times I was shipwrecked. When I was researching this, I thought to myself, where's the part where Paul was shipwrecked? And it, it slipped my mind that he was shipwrecked three times. Shipwrecked. If I put my legs in the ocean... You know what I'm talking about? If you, when you, I'm not talking about like on the shore. I'm talking about you go out a bit. When my legs go in the ocean, I'm sorry. I do not, if there's a thing called manning up, that's not me. When my legs go in the ocean, I can only think of what is swimming towards my feet. It's all I can think of. What could it be? And Paul was shipwrecked. Three times. And you say, Paul, you've got such a painful hardship in your life. And he'd be like, what are you talking about? I am so content with the richness and the wealth of finally knowing God through Jesus that I take on three more of those shipwrecks, knowing that even if I die, I'm going to end up with my Savior. A night and a day, he said, I've been in the deep waters. I've been on journeys, perils of water and robbers, perils of my own countrymen, of the Gentiles in the city, the wilderness and the sea. All the perils of all the places, he said. I've, I've been in the perils of being among false brethren, people lying about me, people backbiting and slandering me. I've been in the perils of weariness and toil and sleeplessness and hunger and thirst. Often, this is the worst one in my opinion, and I've been in the perils of fasting. Right? A nightmare. I've been in the perils of cold and nakedness, 
Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, but there's more where that came from. Paul says, given, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. I was abandoned by all my friends while imprisoned. I was despaired about living. I was alone in the concern for the welfare of the Philippian church. Paul's saying, in all of those things, I've just learned the secret, really, the secret to giving, the secret of generosity, the secret of life and living is to learn to just be content in whatever circumstance I have. Would that be life-changing? Be life-changing, wouldn't it? Jerry Seinfeld has a bit in his latest stand-up where he talks about how this is worth watching. It's worth watching. Where he talks about no one is ever satisfied with being wherever they are right now. And he talks about being in an airport and being at the gate. And he's like, you get to the gate and you're like, where's my plane? The plane comes and you get on the plane and then you sit in the plane. And you're like, when are we leaving? And then he goes through one thing after another. And it is so funny because it's so true. Never content with where I'm at. I'm always looking for the next thing. And Paul here is saying that if you learn the secret of living, you don't have to live a life of ruin and peril and destruction and temptation and all kinds of evil. You can free yourself from all of that by literally embracing whatever circumstance you have and just saying, I have enough. If I have food and shelter and clothing, I have enough. It's enough for me. So genuine contentment is not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. It is not believing that I have uh, enough in and of myself, but by knowing and living with and being joined to Jesus, I have enough. And this is why godliness plus contentment equals great spiritual gain. Christ-sufficiency, the Christ-sufficient church member can be givers because they have everything they treasure in Jesus. So they are free to build their life around four essentials. Um, I want to leave this with you. This is four great words, four essentials that I think if, if, you're, if you just so happen to be now or in the new years thinking, what, what can I center myself on? What should I, what are some of the things that I could embrace, life philosophy or, you know, biblical worldview or whatever? God's provided you with your very own church family to help you practice storing up your treasures in heaven. And it would require, among your church family, it would require four things that will um, help you build your life around. Here's the essential, simplicity. And this is what Paul says, this is the antidote, or the antidote, the antidote to materialism. And it is learning to embrace simplicity. Just living a simple life. In Philippians, Paul writes, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches. God, who is going to supply what you need, it's going to come from his glorious riches, and he's given it to us in Christ. So the simple life really isn't hard, right? Earn an income, trust God for your needs, and give, give, give. Earn an income, trust God for what you need. And in that simplicity you can look for places to give, give, and give. Also, there's another word I wanted to throw out there for you. It's the word gratitude. There's a lot that's been written on gratitude, a lot that's been said about gratitude. And um, 
really instead of, mentioned, I mentioned earlier that our wealth isn't condemned in the Scripture, uh, that if we're wealthy, it's by God's grace. And so, the rejection of material things is called asceticism, and the antidote to asceticism is gratitude. Rather than feeling um, guilty for what we have, instead we are grateful for what we have. There's a gratitude that helps us. And when someone's living a generous life, there's really three reasons why people are generous, three reasons people give. And um, one of the reasons people give is because of guilt. If I make sacrifices, then I won't have to carry the guilt that I would feel if I said no. If I um, give, then I won't have to feel guilty for not giving. So guilt drives people to give. And there's another, um, there's another reason that people give too, and it's kind of like no one ever really notices it, I don't think, but we kind of subtly can give for the glory. Like I'm giving or I'm making sacrifices because someone might notice and think more highly of me. And then there's a third reason that people are driven to give, and it's gratitude. And it's the sense of giving that comes from this idea that I'm so thankful for all that God has given me. I'm overflowing with generosity, and I'm expressing my gratitude as self-giving worship. Like I'm literally giving um, as a means of saying thank you to God. And against craving or consumerism, there's another antidote, and it's contentment. And these are all biblical phrases, biblical words, biblical concepts. These are all certainly something anybody could kind of uh, study out. But what is the antidote for the lust for more and more and more possessions? It is contentment. Contentment with what we have. And then lastly is generosity. And this is the antidote for um, selfishness. So if somebody is trying to move into greater levels of maturity in their faith, uh, instead of selfishness, they're trying to, of course, become more, grow to become more and more generous. Or I could say t- that they're learning to excel in the gracious act of giving. So we have attenders among our church family who love to give. There are some who have the gift of giving meaning they give like regular folks, but then there's an extra gift where they give even more and even more naturally than other people. But among our church family, there's so many givers. And there are others who um, want to give and don't always know where to give, how to give, what to give to, who to give to. And so um, it's possible that there are givers who don't know what the needs are. And Of course, we break down our giving in three ways, Uh, time, talent, and treasure. And the treasure givers oftentimes start with a, uh, a faithfulness, a minimum percentage. The Bible teaches this idea of tithing 10% of your first fruits of what you earn and that, that 10% is set aside and it's kind of put in a storehouse for the needs of the, the church, the expansion of God's kingdom, and the health and thriving, flourishing of the local church. So we have church attenders and members who are faithfully tithing. Uh, the percentage 10 is a starting point, a guide, guideline for some. It's more than that. For others, it'll, it would be less than that. And there are others who are regular givers in the areas of offering. There's a special need 
And they are gifted, eager givers. And anytime they hear of a need, they jump on it. Whether it's a sponsorship or a scholarship, we, have, we always have a need in our church family to sponsor someone, even if it's a marriage conference weekend getaway, student retreat where the students take off uh, for the weekend and, and um, spend time retreating. We have missions opportunities, kids central, preschool scholarships, all kinds of one-time spontaneous offerings, whether it's a sponsorship or a scholarship. And also, there's limitless emergencies where the need has basically um, started to surface that there's a grieving family, or there's a foster family, or there's a missionary, or there's a marriage and family crisis where somebody is in need and the people who respond come from their own church family. And also there are times when there are urgent resources needed, Uh, gift books for new Christians, cases of books for Christians who come to saving faith and and need to get started, or marriage counseling book bundles. There's limitless ways that someone could be a part of offerings that are urgent resources. And then there's a time and talent giver list. Um, The need that we have in our church family to expand the team that is doing hospitality, Um, love and action meals that um, anybody ever receive a meal when you had had surgery, given birth, or otherwise were in a challenge and you got a meal right on time and you were like, this is, to to me, this feels like love. Um, There's a whole bunch of givers who gather up um, love and action meals, hospitality and greeter team to make sure that people that are uh, among us are getting the proper kind of care and attention and very um, hospitable sense of grace that we're receiving people just the way that they are. There's a music and tech team that helps us with music and tech. There are student workers, kids workers, um, all different teams that we've got going on here, that if you felt like God was expanding your generosity, and as a member of His church, you wanted to kind of take a step into giving more, there's time, talent, and treasure. And if that's something that you feel God's stirring you to do, you could scan the QR code on the seat back in front of you, and it'll take you to a page where you could learn about joining a team, where you can give online. Um, We have missionary partners who could also be the people where we aim our treasure and support our missionaries. You can give to the missions fund, the North Central Church Missions Fund, and we do all that for you. Limitless ways to give. People are in need, and we are surrounded by a church family who has the means of meeting those needs. What would it take? Contentment, generosity. And we could do that. And um, we do that as we uh, let our heart get adjusted and let our heart grow.